Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Alternative Fund Insight, exploring themes in hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright. This episode, we discuss decarbonisation, macro and more with the hedge fund manager who has written something of a manifesto for campaign group Extinction Rebellion. Before we start, a reminder that you can follow AFI's page on LinkedIn or register to our free weekly email for the latest interviews, analysis and industry roundup every Monday. You can subscribe at alternativefundinsight.com. Eric Lonergan is a policy economist, financial author and macro hedge fund manager with M&G Investments. His latest book, Supercharge Me, has drawn much attention this year for providing an action plan to battle climate change more quickly. Our discussion covers the book, his thoughts on the ESG debate, the impact of war in Ukraine, markets, macro, and much else besides. Thank you, Eric Lonergan, for joining me today. You are a macro hedge fund manager and also policy economist, writing books on financial themes. Your latest, Supercharge Me, published this year and co-authored by sustainability expert Corinne Sawyers, shows a route to faster decarbonisation. How do you think this is possible? Well, the first thing, I guess, is you know really what motivated us to write the book was frustration with two dimensions to it. One is the prevailing narrative, which I think is broadly incorrect. And the second is the prevailing economic analysis, which I also think is broadly incorrect. Um, And and both of these are kind of mission critical uh, to success. Um, And I think also some clarity of thought about both the narrative and the economics will make people both a lot more clear-sighted in terms of what we need to be doing, but also probably a bit more optimistic in the sense that you realize this is very doable. Mm. Um, and not only is it doable, but there's a lot more upside involved in doing it than it appears. So, so maybe if I could just unpick each one of those, the, the, the first one is the kind of dominant narrative. I think if you stop most people and you ask them about climate change, most people seem to think it involves huge changes in the way we do everything. And that's going to be very, very costly and involve high taxes and big changes in the way we live our lives. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. And the reason that's fundamentally wrong is um, when you look at where expert opinion is on how to reduce emissions, which is really what we're talking about, it's primarily now everybody has converged on electrification. And what we mean by that is we have to make our electricity generation sustainable, and then we have to run everything we do off electricity. Now, immediately, if you put it like that, and actually, if we do that with existing technology, we would cut emissions by about 75%. So 75% of emissions really have nothing to do with any individual or household changing the way they live, nor should their costs go up in any particular way. It's largely about a huge investment in our electricity utilities. Um, which means all of the power generators across. It's it's bad news if you're a gas-fired power generator 
because really the answer is we're going to have to replace your assets with renewable electricity generation. But, you know, if electricity, I don't think many households would care if they're electric, if they're the vehicle they drive in or they get to work in or they travel in is electric. They don't really mind if everything in their house is done off electricity. And uh, they don't mind if their electricity is generated without any emitting any any uh, emissions. So that's the kind of that's where the narrative I think is incorrect. This is really an investment challenge. And that central premise is a very heartening one, actually. Yeah. Because individuals do think that going green is going to cost them in one way or another. Yeah. If that's not the case, that's great. What about the economics? Right. Now, then the economics is, and, and, and as you know, I've been doing economics largely as a macro hedge fund manager, but that's I'm very brutally applied. You know, as I always say, the, the, the advantage about being an economist in financial markets where you're putting on positions is you cannot pretend to, to be right in the face of evidence that is strongly to the contrary because you're out of business. <laughs> so it makes you very humble and it makes you very empirically oriented. So the first thing that intrigued me about this is I actually sat down with Adair Turner, Lord Turner, who is also chair of the Energy Transmission uh, Transition Commi- Commission and is, is phenomenally knowledgeable in the whole area of the policy of climate change. And he pretty much told me what we've just discussed. He said, make electricity sustainable, run everything off the grid. And I got intrigued as as an investor, as a a kind of practical economist, because I thought that's really about capital expenditure in regulated utilities. And capital expenditure in regulated utilities is all about cost of capital and return of capital. And not only that, I know as a professional investor that the lead times in renewable electricity are really short. Like you can build solar farms in 18 months. You can install offshore wind can be done start to finish in five years at vast scale. So these are really short timelines. And the determining variable is the cost of capital. And we live in a world of the historically low cost of capital. The other thing that's really interesting is that taxes play virtually no role in that. Now, then I start reading the literature and I'm aware of the literature. And there's all these economists who want us to get this carbon tax out there and price the carbon tax correctly. And immediately I resisted this because the other thing I do, I know a little bit about the history of of fuel duties. And one of the reasons governments have imposed duties on fuels, which dates back decades, the the American federal highway system was funded by charging a fuel duty. And the reason it was done is because fuel is what economists call price inelastic. And what that means in English is that you change the price, demand doesn't change. That's why it's great at raising revenue. Now, you then think, so what are economists doing here? Because they're choosing a tax that won't change behavior, right? Because the price of fuel taxes don't change behavior. That's the, they're inelastic. They raise loads of revenue. But, you're tr- but the problem that you're trying to address is precisely one of behavioral change, right? You, you don't want to raise any revenue. You want to collapse emissions, right? So it's very curious. But you can understand how it happened because economists think pollution. They think externalities. They take out their microeconomics book. They go to the chapter on externalities. You've got to tax it right. And then everything works in the textbook. Mm -hmm. But there's a very good, but I actually think they're the two wrong chapters of the textbook, which is that the right chapter is regulated utilities. And the other one is the price elasticity of demand. And what's very interesting is that subtle change in emphasis has a huge change in policy relevance. Because price elasticity of demand, which is a mouthful, but it says you need substitutes. If you want to change 
the elasticity demand, you have to create a substitute. If you create a perfect substitute, you'll get perfect price elasticity demand. Right. Now, that sort of sounds all theoretical. What's the practical application? Well, let me give you a really clear example. UK has one of the highest levels of fuel duty, if not the highest in the developed world. And we have a below average level of electric vehicles. That's a perfect example of what I'm describing. We raise loads of revenue. Behavior doesn't change because we've already bought our cars. And, right? and we don't have a perfect substitute. Norway says, okay, let's target the price of the substitute. Well, where's the substitute? It's the electric vehicle. So make the electric vehicle cheaper at the point of purchase than the petrol vehicle. And it's and you also have to have a good charging infrastructure because you want to make them perfect substitutes, right? So it can't inconvenience you. Give me a good charging infrastructure, make the electric vehicle cheaper, and what happens? Everybody buys electric vehicles. So it is possible to incentivize that kind of behavior. The key thing is you've got to target, though, the substitute. And by because people go, oh, but that's what we're doing with the carbon tax. No, you're not, because you don't have a substitute. You have to have a substitute, right? So it forces you to create a substitute. And once you've got a substitute, then you target the relative price. So it's too simplistic to say, you know, don't tax anything at all. I'm all put up the tax on petrol vehicles, but slash the tax on electric vehicles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that when you and I go to buy our next car, we'd be an idiot if we didn't buy the electric vehicle. Now, to uh, pick you up on your point about the historically low uh, borrowing costs, those have increased since the book came out. And uh, we're now in a time where people think inflation yeah. is going to be around for longer. It's harder now for governments to borrow at those low rates to invest in the climate infra infrastructure, uh, which you propose. How much harder has it got? Well, surprisingly, you know, I still can't really believe how lucky we are. You know, if you look at where gilt yields are, I mean, gilt yields are barely above 2%. You know, if they hadn't gone to zero during the pandemic, which again, and I was saying during the pandemic, we should, we should have borrowed to do capital expenditure. There's two points that are really important. First of all is what is the level, the cost of debt to the government relative to the return on capital? Because that's the key equation. The second thing is, and it's, it's very frustrating if you listen to the, the current political debate in the UK, there is a huge difference between borrowing for consumption and borrowing for investment. And most people understand this. If you borrow to put an extension on your home and you create value, well, you've created an asset. It's wealth creation. It's wealth creation, exactly. Particularly if the return on that is higher than your cost of debt. Right? If you go, you know, on a bender, you know, on the... <laughs> <laughs> on a stag weekend and you do it all on the credit card, <laughs> you come back with a liability, right? That's a pretty profound difference. And so the point I keep pressing to policymakers when I talk to them is offshore wind makes a return in Europe of around 6%. Most of Europe, the UK is at the higher end of the spectrum. The UK can borrow a two. If I can borrow a two and make six in 15 years time, I can repay the debt and I've got an asset. So the interesting thing is what's fascinating here is that's wealth creation. So it's a double stupidity because, to be honest, even if you don't care about the environment, you should be doing that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like squandering an opportunity to, to create wealth. So that opportunity still exists. You know, you still see a low, you still see a low rate environment. Yeah, because yields because yields are still very low. You know, gilt yields are still around two. Um, which for me is extraordinary. I mean, I personally uh, would be pretty bearish in all those assets. You know, I'm not investing in those assets as, as a professional. So with my professional investor hat on, I'm going, I would not bet on those levels of yields being around forever. Uh, so I'd get a move on. You talk about needing more mini musks, i.e. very ambitious founders willing to take sometimes mad risks to pursue ideas. 
backed by speculative venture cap funding. Does the market environment we're now in make that harder? Again, you know, it's sort of two hats here. Like I, I, I can observe what I see. And what I see is an extraordinary boom in all forms of capital going into the sorts of innovation that we require. So that makes me as a human being very positive because when anybody says to you now, we don't have a technology to do that yet, what that usually tells you is they actually don't know enough about what's happening in the world because every day I meet people who get in touch with me and it's partly because of the book and they've got a technology or they're already trialing something that I thought was three or four or five years away. I mean, there are already companies that are trialing hydrogen within our existing pipe infrastructure. I think there's going to be a town in the UK, which will be almost 100% hydrogen, I think within the next uh, three or four years. We just don't know. I was just over in Dublin at a book festival. This investor came up afterwards and said, you know, you do realize offshore wind in Ireland as we have roughly the same capacity as the entirety of the UK. (laughs) We think we can excess produce and do green hydrogen. I mean, because the whole world is trying to address this problem, there is technology. And and in, in the investor market, I just, on my LinkedIn, I see a new fund every week that's saying mm-hmm. green impact investing, R&D, VC. Now, as a professional investor, do I think their returns are going to be good? No. I think it's a monumental, sadly, I, I think it's like, it's it's very like the TMT to me. In, ter- in terms of you're left, you're going to be left with hugely useful innovation, but investors are going to lose a lot of money. Are you on a similar page to your fellow hedge fund manager, Chris Hone, when it comes to ESG? He's been very critical this year, saying all this engagement isn't achieving anything. He says, ultimately, it comes down to emissions and they are still rising. So what do you make of the ESG debate? Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about Chris's position, really, to to talk about it specifically. I I think I may have had a conversation with him some time ago. He was very focused, I think, on on carbon taxes, which I'm skeptical of. But I don't want to I don't want to attribute that to him because that may not be his his position anymore. Or or, and I may have misunderstood him. I, I, I think so. My position on ESG is I think it's it's broadly it's a positive phenomenon for a very simple reason. What I've just described to you is a capital allocation problem. So one of the levers is the cost of capital. And there is no doubt that financial markets have shifted the cost of capital hugely in favor or rather against emissions, right? And you just see this if you compare the P multiple of an Orsted to a BP, right? And so the cost of capital has changed. If you speak to Shell, you know, big oil major, their their discount rate if they do a new oil project is something like 20%. So it's incredibly costly cost of capital, their discount rate if they're doing offshore wind, 6 to 8%. So financial markets are doing exactly the right thing. Green bonds are the same. If you're doing renewable, sustainable, lower cost of capital, if you're polluting, emitting, higher cost of capital. Having said that, I think in the book, we, t- we talk about the kind of three hyphens, which are, they're not all hyphens, you'll know this as a journalist, but it's an easy way to remember it. So the greenwashing, free riding and, and mis-selling. And that, those are the things I worry about with ESG. So I worry about greenwashing, which is people, which I guess is Chris's point, is pretending to do stuff and it's not having much effect. I worry about about free riding, which is people just sell assets off the grid. You know, so mining companies go, I want to improve my ESG score. I just sell the coal assets to a private owners off the grid and nobody sees it, but they continue to pollute. Like that's clearly crazy, but it's happening, right? And we shouldn't be letting it happen because it's happening in broad daylight. 
And, uh, you know, and I think there's a mis-selling point, which is promising people higher returns, which there is absolutely no reason to believe. If, if anything, we should be saying you will probably expect to have lower returns. Um, right. You know, I don't know what the returns are going to be. I have to be really clear about that. I clearly don't know. It's possible the returns will be higher, but you should be expecting to have uh, more moderate returns. So broadly, I, I'm kind of I'm 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 pro ESG. I I worry that the industry is rushing headlong into it, but that's perhaps inevitable. Um, and I think you know a lot more sophisticated and subtle thought is required. But I, but what I observe at the aggregate level, I would say, is positive. So in in sum, I, I thought your book was really you know quite heartening actually in showing that there are these practical yeah. measures to essentially affect change. Now all this does rely on popular support, at least in democracies. Yeah. Is there not a risk to going faster? Your book was published when Russia invaded Ukraine, which has unleashed a lot of criticism of the net zero agenda. Europe faces an energy crisis, and a lot of people say the focus on renewables, where there is insufficient supply, has led to our other more controlled sources of energy being run down, over-reliance on Putin. So do you think what's happened this year could reduce support for the types of ideas you recommend? I don't think so, but I, I do think there's been a huge narrative failure on behalf of the kind of net zero movement, if you will, or people, and a, a well-intentioned but hugely misguided. So the emphasis on carbon taxes has been absolutely disastrous. It, it doesn't work as we discussed, but also it, 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 it fires up populism, um, and you see that everywhere. The association of green with tax is just a is politically that deep, profoundly damaging, particularly when what we should really be doing is is associating green with cheaper, cheaper vehicles, cheaper electricity, wealth creation, because that's the reality. And that's the reality if you look at what's happened with Russia. And I think most people get that who think about it. The only reason we have high electricity prices is because we're dependent on fossil fuels. The impact of ESG on our uh, investment in the carbon sectors has been pretty trivial. The reason global gas prices were high was largely because the Chinese switched from uh, coal to gas because of pollution in their urban areas, which caused a, a huge increase in the global gas price. But that's the whole point is the point is we're hugely dependent on gas. Uh, you know, the, 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 the price of, of wind and sun is free. So the reality is, if you, if you look at it now, the renewable sector is, of course, making an absolute fortune um, because, of course, renewable electricity is very, very low marginal cost. It's all CapEx. So once you've done the CapEx, um, so we should, if we, if we had higher shares of renewable and less dependence on gas, um, that should be the goal. And ultimately, we want to eliminate the effect of, of fossil fuel prices on electricity because it's a huge cost to the economy because it's so volatile. And, you know, again, I know as a practitioner, like just look at the history of the oil price. I mean, it's got nothing to do with ESG. I mean, the history of oil price is boom bust. It's, it's, it's brutal volatility. So given that we have a substituting technology, why would we make the most significant input in our economy dependent on a volatile fuel, when if we do huge investment, we could actually have much, much lower and more stable electricity prices. Final question on Supercharge Me. Should we consider it as a, a manifesto for the likes of Extinction Rebellion? 
Well, that's it. That's a great question. You, 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 you obviously heard us talking about this. Like one of the things we talk about in the book, you know, one of the structures is what can you do at different levels? And we talk about individuals and I'm not really a big advocate in starting with individual lifestyle change. I, I, I'd rather individuals became activists if they want to have an effect. And there is a very, very interesting interview, which I would highly recommend with, with Roger Hallam, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion on YouTube. And I think it's called you know, how to how to stop climate change in six months, something along those lines. What I find interesting is, is that he's a realist when it comes to social change and behavior. And he borrows on the work of an academic from Harvard called Erica Chenoweth, which is really, really interesting, where she pretty much shows that that most huge change like the civil rights movement in America, but, but the whole history of it from hundreds of different countries uh, is usually the peaceful actions of a relatively small minority. So the kind of magic number is around three or 4%. So if three or 4% of the population say enough is enough, we're going on the streets, uh, they by and large will get legislative change. Something actually happens because democratic societies are just not willing to tolerate that level of civil disruption and disobedience. Uh, now, that's very interesting to me. The thing that worries me is what's the deal? So, you know, if, if, if everything does grind to a halt and Extinction Rebellion on, on the other side of the negotiating table, what, what does one want to offer? And I, I would rather it didn't have to come to that. But I, this is, has been part of the reason you're absolutely right. We wrote the book is that there isn't a manifesto. There's nothing that says, okay, if Greta Thunberg was in power, what would you actually do realistically? Right? And I think this is a, 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 a starting case for what you would do. And you could have a dramatic impact within a five to 10 year time horizon where you would have a dramatic reduction in emissions and you would win over your population. Your work in this area doesn't necessarily match the, the popular conception of hedge fund managers. So how does your, your work as a hedge fund manager inform your, your written work, your ideas, your, your policy making, activism, and vice versa? Well, you know, I love, I love my day job um, because it's extraordinary intellectual stimulus. Um, and, you know, and, and, and my primary function in my day job is to, you know, and you know this well, is to protect and ultimately grow the savings of, you know, um, people's life assurance policies and pension funds and their savings. So I feel I have a, a fiduciary and ethical duty to do that as well as I can. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I also do feel, given my position as a, as a market participant and, and as, as a hedge fund manager, I have access to knowledge and information and expertise that can also be applied to areas of public policy. And maybe because it gives a slightly different perspective. I'm not an academic economist. I'm not a, you know, I don't have a political axe to grind. Um, but I, I know an awful lot about market pricing, about how policies affect things, about how human psychology and behavior works. Um, and it's, I guess, that and that's really how the two have kind of sort of combined and to work in this way. But I also find, you know, it, it works both ways. I've also, through writing these books, have learned a huge amount and had to interact with a much more diverse group of people than I might do if I was just stuck at my Bloomberg screens all the time. And so I also think it has really helped inform how I think about markets and understand these things as well. So it, the, the kind of two complement each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, focusing on the day job, 
Uh, it's been a, a very good year for Global Macro uh, for the episode strategy at M&G. What, what has created those conditions? It's been really fascinating, I'd say, well, the last 12, 18 months, because I'd say it's one of the clearest investment environments I think I've ever seen where you just really, really had good odds if you could be objective. And really what I mean by that, and and this is, as you know, we have quite an unusual view of of asset price determination. Most people still subscribe to a view that when the S&P goes up or down, they look for some news to justify why it's done that. And I don't really buy that kind of news price relationship. I think prices move for a whole host of other reasons. And and investor beliefs are not really well anchored. I think most people don't really even have any beliefs, and I'm not even sure if their beliefs affect what their decisions. These linkages are, are far more opaque, I think, than, than people assume. But you know, if I go back, uh, I can remember uh, almost exactly a year ago, we had one of our quarterly offsites, and our, our U.S. team did a presentation on the U.S. economy. Uh, and, you know, Dave and I were talking about, and I said to Dave, you know, if, if you had arrived, if, if you were looking at this and you'd arrived from Mars, you would just go, why isn't the Fed funds rate at four or five percent? I mean, the, the U.S. economy was already a year ago about as strong as I've ever seen it. I mean, it was as strong as I'd seen it in the late 1990s ahead of the TMT bubble mm-hmm. when the Fed funds rate was six. Now, you didn't even have to act then. came to January and I had people trying to argue that this was a relative price movement in the inflation rate as opposed to a generalized inflation problem. And to me, it was, you just had to, if this wasn't an inflation problem, if this isn't an inflation problem, I don't know what one is, right? It's so obvious. Um, And yet markets were in this weird phase of denial. And unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, and this is something I'm trying to work on as a human being, is, is try and contribute to the debate on policy because this is not a good solution. But the way policymakers in the Western world respond to inflation problems is they put up interest rates until the economy goes into recession. That's basically the model. You can dress it up in econometrics or highfalutin formula, but that's the model. The model is I keep on putting up interest rates until I cause a recession, the unemployment rates go up. Wages come down, prices come down. That's how it works. Um, and that means all asset prices fall. It is un- it is unambiguously bearish. Um, and so, you know, we've kind of been predisposed to short everything. And I'm, I think uh, I'm not surprised by this recent rally. Again, this is classic behavior because you're not yet in a recession. So people get hugely confused because they go, hang on a minute, but everything's booming and everything is booming. You've still got an incredibly tight labor market. So you should expect you get these big, massive rallies, and we've been able to take advantage of that. But I am pretty much back to where I was in January now, um, which is, I think it's really quite clear what's happening. And the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates until the US economy goes into recession. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, you know I'm stating that as if it's 100% certain, nothing in life is certain, you can always be surprised. But I uh, it's it's as good as it gets as, as, a, as an observation. In other words, I would... I can't see a set of circumstances where I would have a higher degree of confidence. <laughs> it's about observing and also gauging the odds of how others might react to that. And markets are not forward-looking. I think that's one of the things I've really, really come clear to me in the last four or five years that I've learned. I, I think I I never quite believe the extent to which they're not, but I really felt this with the pandemic, how how late the market reaction was 
And I went back and looked at 2008, and it's fascinating. The U.S. economy uh, had already contracted before the big the big falls in the S and P 500. Wow! Uh, it, so it was actually a lagging, in, it lagged the economy. Uh, it's re- it's really interesting question. You know, you talk to people, and then you see what actually causes them to make investment decisions. Is 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 what matters, and that is very different to what they purport to believe or they say. Um, I think this, 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 the behavior of prices is what's really quite surprising. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me in a sense that even though it's kind of obvious that we have very bad news coming, the, there's this kind of collective denial of it. And then at some point, there will actually be an overreaction to it. With those clear trends, with the, the kind of the clear focus on fundamentals, that's what makes it a good time for global macro, isn't it? I think that is very true. The, the other reason I think it's very good for global macro is because I think you know this is a macro problem. I don't think you're going to be able to hide with stock selection. You know, again, I think one of the most dangerous things in this kind of an environment is 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 sort of the potential for value traps to start talking about things looking cheap. You know, Microsoft. After the GFC, I remember I never thought it would happen. It was a single-digit P multiple. I think Apple was a single-digit P multiple. Like, uh, what, you have no idea how cheap things can get. Thing, things, unfortunately, uh, when central bankers cause recessions, so the wise, you know, the wise investor has cash at the lows, and they are few and far between because they thought things were cheap before the lows. So I think. Yeah, I think it, it is a macro environment. There's, there's, it's very, very diff- difficult, if not impossible, to find cute little hiding places. Um, but as always, you know, it, uh, you obviously have to get on the right side. Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting times ahead, Eric, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, congratulations on your book this year. And it's been a pleasure to have you on uh, AFI. Likewise. Good to talk. Thank you to Eric. You can head to alternativefundinsight.com for my five takeaways from the interview. And also, if you wish, sign up to the free AFI newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Any reviews would be gratefully received. You can also email me to provide feedback, suggest guests, or simply say hello at will at alternativefundinsight.com. Thank you, as always, for joining me. See you next time.